Hello everyone, this is Lisa Fields, the founder and president of the Jude 3 Project, and I just want to take this time to personally thank all of our monthly supporters. We could not do what we do without giving from people like you. I greatly, greatly appreciate it. And if you're not a monthly supporter and you would like to become one, you can go to jude3project.org and hit the donate tab and sign up. We are grateful for you and we hope you enjoy today's new episode. God bless. Hello, welcome to the Jew 3 Project podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew 3 Project. Well, thank you for watching another episode of the Jew 3 Project podcast. As always, I'm your host, Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jew 3 Project. And today I'm joined by a very special guest, Dr. Leo Persher. Welcome, Dr. Persher. Thank you, Lisa. Glad to be here. Happy glad to join you. Glad to have you. Dr. Persher uh, was my New Testament professor, and I took so, a lot of different classes with Dr. Purser, talked to him a lot while I was at my time at Liberty, and he is my favorite all-time uh, New Testament, well, professor in general in, in seminary. Uh, <laughs> I probably, talked, me, Thank I you. probably <laughs> talked to him the most uh, out of any of my professors, and I I even did, well, in our Wide Out and I Go series, I talked about a conversation that you and I had. Um, I had you illustrated in that. I, don't, I think you saw it. Uh, yes, uh, so Dr. Purser, uh, tell our audience just a little bit about who you are. Well, uh, I teach here at Liberty University. I am an associate professor of biblical studies. Most of the classes I teach deal with New Testament. Uh, I teach uh, hermeneutics or how to interpret the Bible. Uh, I also uh, am the director for the PhD in theology and apologetics program. So I work with a lot of doctoral students as well as graduate master's level students. Um, and that's that's the thing. That's that's the job that pays the bills. I also serve uh, as an elder at a local church and uh, spend some time preaching here and there uh, for, for local congregations. So uh, basically, my job is I get to hang out with people and talk about Jesus and I can't beat it. So that's that's what I do. Awesome. Well, I'm happy to have you here. Um, it's the less pressure now that I'm not getting graded. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I'm sure there are a lot of people who would agree with that. <laughs> we had you on uh, some years back. You were one of our first, some one of the first um, guests we had on the podcast uh, back right. in the day when we were just doing audio. So uh, it's been a minute since you've, you've been on. But uh, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about today is how to answer difficult questions with grace and truth. And okay. this is something that I've seen you do time and time again in class, in my talking to you um, in your office numerous times, you just have a very humble approach to answering the questions um, and you're open to be wrong about things. And so I've learned a lot from you, just how you answer questions, uh, whether you say, I don't know, or you just give a more relatable answer. So it's not like just speaking from an ivory tower. And so that was so impressive to me because you do have a PhD in New Testament. And so kind of how did you develop and cultivate um, your approach to answering questions? Well, uh, you know, I'll be honest with you, Lisa, you, you don't you don't get the degrees that I've earned without a bit of arrogance. Um, mm -hmm. I wish I could say otherwise, but it would be untrue. Uh, for a long time, you know, I thought that uh, that I I had all the answers. 
Mm. Um, the, the truth of the matter is it took a really hard situation in my own life uh, where I was struggling with some sin issues and God had to, to call me out, not just um, privately, but publicly about my own sin. Uh, that I'll be honest, that taught me humility. I learned, um, I learned through that experience that my options are two. I can either practice humility uh, by recognizing who I am in Christ and, and recognizing that, that I, I'm not everything. I'm not all that there is. I'm not the only answer. Or God can teach me humility. And um, I learned very in a very, very hard way that having God teach you humility is not something you want. So any, any humility you see in me is a result of uh, some very hard times. I'll be honest with you. I wish my wife was here to, to talk with us about it because it, uh, it affected our marriage. It affected uh, pretty much everything. And, and God humbled me. So um, uh, I don't want to go into details, uh, very personal situation, but uh, I can tell you, uh, anybody that's listening to us, if, if God's trying to teach you humility, learn to practice it. Because if you have to teach, if you learn it direct from the teacher, it's, it's not any fun. Um, but through all that, I kept coming back to the reality that God is the one with whom I have to do. And he's, he's the sole focus. And when I'm trying to steal the limelight, when I'm trying to steal the spotlight, I'm trying to put myself in his position. And, and God taught me pretty in a pretty hard way that uh, I'm not I'm not the guy in the spotlight. I'm not uh, I'm, I'm not the I don't know. I'm not the star athlete. That's Jesus. So I, I would say the, the first approach is to recognize you're not it, that God is that mm -hmm. the, the, the topic of conversation is Jesus and what he's accomplished for us. Um, Everything else is secondary. Mm -hmm. That's so that's so helpful that, you know, to to hear that journey for you that because I know the more you learn, the Bible says knowledge puffs up. Absolutely. <laughs> well, and it, yeah, it's 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 real easy to think, you know, everything. I mm -hmm. mean, with the Internet, with the access to the books I have and the education I have, it's the default position for most humans is I got to figure it out. Um, but you know, when I'm in my own private moment of, uh, of, uh, hardness and God's chastising me and, uh, my marriage is on the line and my future is on the line and all these things I thought defined who I was is now in, in peril. Um, all of a sudden God became a whole lot more important and, um, um, his direction, his way, his approach. All I can say is it, it it dramatically changed me. I had a very dear friend who met me uh, about a year after that, and we were chatting, and he said, there's something different about you. And, mm. and I, I took that as a badge of honor because God had humbled me, and I, and I don't recommend it. Humble yourself before the Lord. That's what you know, Peter says. Uh, if we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, he will lift us up. So uh, you know, learn humility. Practice it because, uh, again, if God teaches it to you, it's, it's a harsh lesson. Mm-hmm. That's that's so helpful. Uh, one of the lessons that I learned from you just in class, and uh, I'm going to note some lessons I learned from you that you probably didn't even realize that I learned from you. Uh, <laughs> but I had asked you a question one time. I think it was in um, our John class. I think mm -hmm. I had you for John. And mm -hmm. you said, I don't know. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, Oh man, like it's okay to not know things. Um, <laughs> what what kind of, cause I know some people really struggle with that, that they're into apologetics and they've right. memorized a lot of arguments and then they like get to a question they don't know. And they're like, oh my God, I can't say I don't know. And for <laughs> me, 
hearing you as a PhD say, I don't know, was like, oh, okay, I could say, I don't know. It was like, I didn't look down on you uh, for saying, I don't know. It just kind of gave me like a relief. Like, I don't have to know everything. Yeah, well, you know, uh, again, uh, I have to go back to the fact that um, I have learned a lot. Um, I have a lot of book information. Um, I'm not gonna deny that, but to, to think that I've somehow exhausted the full repertoire of what God knows is a little presumptuous on my part. Um, I, you know, I appreciate you, you humble me when you say things like that, because uh, sometimes I'm not even aware. Uh, I was just in, in Hebrews class earlier and we were talking about one of the, the warning passages and how difficult it is to understand these things. And so I encouraged him. I said, let's engage in a little bit of, uh, of thinking outside the box. Let's let's ask the hard questions and see if we can come to some answers. I'm not saying we can satisfy all the, the questions. Um, so I, I guess in response to your, your comment, I, I've learned that uh, John says in the Gospel of John that those who are in the light come to the light and they're not afraid to have their deeds exposed which mm. you know, Jesus says that he's the truth. So God values truth. So in my mind, telling the truth about something is more important than winning an argument. If I honestly don't know the answer, then it's uh, it's it's a lot easier to just say, well, you know what? I don't know. I'll have to get back to you. I'd have to look that up. Um, I, I have a, a f another fellow student, a former student that I joke around a lot with. We, we have debates joking <laughs> online. And I'm all, we're always one-upping each other, but that kind of sophistry, that kind of, uh, um, you know, just arguing for argument's sake really doesn't create, you know, it may create fun and camaraderie between the two of us, but it doesn't really create in, information. So I, I've learned you know, from the Lord that it's better for me just to admit if I don't have an answer, that I don't have an answer, or to at least admit that I'll go look for one and get back mm -hmm. to you. So uh, I, I'm not even cognizant of doing that. I'll be honest with you, Lisa, sometimes it's just the truth. Mm -hmm. So speaking the truth is, is the best thing we can do. Mm -hmm. as, as far as your, I've never asked you this question, but how did you cultivate uh, a desire and a love for apologetics? Because you're over oh. the PhD and apologetics program. I never asked you, like, how did you stumble into being an apologist? Yeah, that's a, it's a, well, that's actually kind of comedic. When <laughs> um, I did my MDiv many, many years ago, back when Moses was still teaching seminary. And um <laughs> When I finished my MDiv, uh, I, I was dating a young lady and I went to visit her at the college where she was a student. And um, they, were, they had a master, uh, they had a graduate program, master of arts program in philosophy. And the, the dean walked me around, introduced me to people, and, one, and, and he introduced me to several philosophers, men like uh, one of the guys that taught there was Dr. Ronald Nash, who's pretty well known in Christian uh, presuppositionalist uh, uh, apologetics. And um, uh, Dr. Nash has gone to be the Lord now, but uh, he was he was still there. And he took me in his office and chatted. And I'll be honest, I was more interested in philosophy than anything. So I went to school there and did a philosophy degree. And um, when I came to Liberty, the uh, the somebody had pitched the idea. I think it was Dr. Falwell, actually, Dr. Uh, Jerry Falwell Sr. had pitched the idea of a PhD in theology. The dean at the time uh, pitched the idea of adding apologetics to it. And I made the mistake of asking about the degree one day to uh, the associate dean, and he put me in charge of being the, uh, of the committee to write the program. <laughs> so the answer to your question is, 
I never really started out with an interest in apologetics. I, mm. I ended up with it because of my philosophical training. Now, I, I have been trained technically in, in some apologetic approaches, but my ba- background is much more in philosophy than in straight up uh, Christian apologetics. Dr. Gary Habermas, a good friend of mine here at Liberty, has taught me an awful lot about uh, apologetics, and he's one of the, the lead profs here in our PhD program. So I would have to say that uh, my interest grew as I got to know some of these guys who do the hard work and, and watching some folks like you, Lisa, who are out here uh, doing doing apologetics on the ground. Um, it excites me to see, you know, Jude says in his little letter that he was going to write a letter about the faith. And mm-hmm. then he changed his mind. He decided to write about contending for the truth. Um, Peter talks in 1 Peter 3 about uh, um, giving a reason for the hope that is in you. That's an apologetic approach. And as, I, as, I, as I've gotten to know these apologetics and these, these approaches, I've found that it's another way of sharing the truth of who Jesus is and what God's doing. So I guess, I, you know, with the honest answer to your question, I kind of backed into apologetics from philosophy, if I'm honest. Um, but I see the the need. Um, a lot of Christians don't know why they believe what they believe. They don't know, uh, in some cases, even what they believe, what they should believe, at least. And so I think it's important to train people to think rationally and critically about their faith, ask the hard questions. I, I, you know, you know me, I'm, I'm not afraid of hard questions. I'm, uh, they, I think they're important. So I guess that's the answer. I, I love apologetics because it's, it's another area for me to make much of Jesus. Mm-hmm. That's that's certainly certainly helpful. Um, what is what do you find is most the most difficult apologetic question, and how do you <laughs> how do you approach it? Well, I find them all difficult to be <laughs> honest with you. <laughs> I constantly go to my colleagues and say, "Well, how would you answer this?" Um, but I do think that you know you, you've mentioned before uh, the conversation you and I had about the problem of evil. Um, I, I still find that one. The, I think there's good, sound apologetic answers to it. Quite frankly, I do think there's some good philosophical answers to it. But that's the most challenging to me because it's real life. Um, mm-hmm. You know, all of us face you know, this pandemic we've been in for the past year, um, the, the the horror of war in the past, the horror of wars in the future, for that matter. Um, racial injustice, uh, just injustice in general, uh, political unrest. I mean, the whole world has problems. And some of those problems are directly attributable to issues that we would consider evil, if we're honest. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the question of why would God allow evil like this is, is a huge one. And I think it's one that Christians, even again, even though we've come up with some answers that I think philosophically might be satisfactory, it, you, you know, as well as I do, it still hurts the heart to see a friend or a loved one going through injustice or a friend or loved one going through a physical uh, hardship. Sickness and whatnot. Um, my wife has multiple sclerosis, and um, watching her deal with a chronic disease on a regular basis, you know, I, I cry out to God a lot about her situation. I see, I see the things she has to go through that other healthy people don't face, and uh, you know, it, it does raise the question of why. I'm not even going to deny that. So I think that's the problem of evil. Still, in my opinion, one of the harder questions for apologists. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember you. Uh talking about um, that struggle for you in, in class one day as, as it relates to you praying for healing for your wife um, and how that kind of is a rub oftentimes that 
that I love how you said they are they are apologetic answers, philosophical answers, but it still hurts the heart. And so you're more so when you're engaging with people with the problem of evil, you're wrestling with that hurt heart. And so I think, you know, the way you phrase that is it's helpful to connect with people and to say, like, when I, for those of you who didn't see the um, series on things I learned along the way, one of the things when I was wrestling with the problem of evil and I went to Dr. Persher's office and he said, you know, I do too. And so his answer to me was, this is a common thing that uh, you won't be able to solve uh, overnight or with just a particular argument. The arguments help, but it won't necessarily take the pain that goes along with wrestling with the problem of evil. Um, think, think about the, think about sharing the pain of someone who's lost a loved one or lost a relationship or, uh, you know, uh, a mother who's lost a child or, uh, you know, all the philosophical answers to the problem of evil are not going to be happy. You're not going to satisfy that person at all. Mm. But my, you know, me being there, loving them, um, crying with them, walking with them through the hardship that, you know, to me, that's a, a we can always have a, a cup of coffee and a philosophical conversation about why bad stuff happens to good people. Um, that's an ongoing conversation, but I think the, the presence, you know, uh, well, here, here's how I think about it in, in the, in the past as I've, as I've dwelt on this, I realized that God faced the problem of evil head on. I mean, Jesus comes as a human. He, he's fully God, fully, fully man. And he faces evil head on in the wilderness temptations when he's in the wilderness 40 days and tempted by Satan. But then again on the cross, when he, when he bears our sins, when he becomes the sin bearer and takes our place, uh, you know, pays our price for our sins. Um, God faced evil. I mean, he didn't just ignore it. He didn't, he didn't treat it as a philosophical conundrum. He addressed it and he endured it. And I, I, so I think that sometimes we as Christians, we, we have to remember that although our answers are maybe sound, maybe biblically sound, maybe philosophically sound, sometimes we just have to to embrace those who are going through the hard times, embrace, especially the evil, real evil. I'm not talking about just you know emotional trauma. That's bad enough. But I'm talking about genuine evil that sometimes we just need to, to come close to those people and be their friends, be, be there, be God's presence in the middle of their hard time. Um, I don't know how else to put it because that's what Jesus did for us. Mm-hmm. Um, the promise of the resurrection, the Sunday morning when Jesus gets out of the tomb is the promise that evil is short term. It's not long term. And so I do think we have hope as Christians. I think sometimes you forget that um, trying to wave hope in, in the face of a person who just lost a loved one to sickness or lost a child to a tragic accident. Um what they need is your hugs. They need your love. They need your prayers. And that's harder because that's bearing a burden as opposed to answering a question, if you will. Mm, that's good. That's good. I love that you you shared that. And, you know, even, even when you think about giving answers to the problem of evil, the philosophical and apologetic answers, what may be a satisfactory answer to you may be a discouraging answer to another, another yeah, person. I know Alistair McGrath notes that in his book, Mere Apologetics, he's like, you know, basically he's saying, you know, you can know the arguments, but just because mm-hmm. it's good for you, it could be equally as as a, uh, a deterrent for another person. When they hear that argument, they're like, oh, I can't serve a God like that. <laughs> they well, may need another yeah. argument. I, I even think of a personal example. When I lived in Louisville, Kentucky, when I was a seminary, uh, a single man, I roomed with two other 
students, and mm -hmm. one of them who's still one of my best friends in the world, um, he had a, a tragic bicycle accident and was uh, severely injured. In fact, they, they weren't sure he was going to live. Uh, mm -hmm. God was good. Uh, Ed, Ed survived, and he's alive and well today. But in the struggle of recovery, he spent almost six weeks, I believe, if memory serves me, in a coma. In the struggle of recovery, I watched this man who'd been my friend for years uh, learn to walk, learn to eat, learn to do all the things we take for granted. And I watched him cry and, and grieve through just the, the pain and the travail he went through. And I remember one day uh, he and I were talking. We had had a conversation years before this accident happened in which um, I had uh, had in, in experienced a personal breakup, a relationship breakup. And I was mourning as, a, as, a, as some are likely to do. And Ed said to me, um, that seems like a pretty simple thing. Just blow it off. Those were his words. You know, these were his answer to my problem of evil, if you will. <laughs> well, there Ed sits in his bed and struggling to, to relearn these things. And he looks at me and he says, I realize now that one man's easy burden is another man's heavy burden. Mm. And, and, and I thought what wisdom God had shown him in this situation, because he's right. Some people could handle disasters with amazing grace and ability. Uh, other people, they fall apart at the drop of a hat. And like you just said, answers to the problem of evil might satisfy some, but they're going to leave other people you know, dry and, and missing out on something. So I think we, we have to be sensitive to the need of the moment as well as the answers. I mean, some people are generally seeking those answers, and I have no problem. Um, a good friend of mine, uh, 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 Clay Jones, wrote a book on the problem of evil, very good book on it, in fact. And I, so I, I don't mind recommending people to that. But I also, like I said, I think what, Ed and I learned that walking with each other through our own problems, through our own trials, was much more Christ-like than trying to offer easy solutions to her. I could have easily said to Ed, you know, you just got to get out of the bed and try to walk. You just got to, you know, follow the doctor's orders and get healthy. Um, that would have been accurate, but he didn't need, he needed my, um, he needed my attention. He needed mm. my agreement, not, not my correction. And so when he said that, I just looked at him and I said, understand Ed, I got it. I said, you weren't trying to be, you know, in the past, you weren't trying to be hard on me and I'm not trying to be hard on you. We're here for each other. And that, that cemented our relationship, our friendship. Um, so I, I think that's the key is recognizing that what looks like a hardship for one person, not that bad for another. What looks like total evil to another person is manageable for somebody else. The one size fits all parameters don't always work in real life situation. So we need to be we need to be sensitive to the need of the moment, I think. Mm -hmm. That's so that's so, so true. Um, you mentioned Hebrews. Uh, mm -hmm. This is not on topic, but one <laughs> of my favorite classes <laughs> that I took from you is Hebrews. And you introduced me to a book from your mentor, William Lane, on mm -hmm. Hebrews. Oh, small, yeah, a small book. It's an excellent book. Uh, if you don't have it, I suggest you get uh, a Hebrews. I call a commitment by William Lane. Very good uh, book. Great book. Uh, when we think about Hebrews, I just have to go there because you mentioned it and it made me pick a <laughs> class. Uh, okay. There's some passages in Hebrews and I know you're, te I think you're teaching Hebrews right now. So this yes, is, that's yeah. correct. Uh, so this won't be a, a crazy question, but what are the, what's the tension in Hebrews for most people? Because it seems like uh, there are some verses in Hebrews that uh, contradict. Uh, so 
kind of can you can you explain just one or two? Uh, How long is the podcast? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I should have kept my mouth shut. Um, Yeah, the biggest tension in Hebrews is the is the the question of, um, you know, the author's writing to a group of Christians that are clearly facing some kind of uh, um, crisis. Um, Mm -hmm. I personally think it's a crisis of faith. Uh, the the question scholars ask is what is this crisis of faith? Is the is some people argue like my mentor that these are Jewish Christians who are now tempted to leave Christianity, return to Judaism because it's safer because they're facing persecution and they see Judaism has received uh, some kind of blessing, as you will, from the Roman government, so that they're not uh, persecuted as harshly. So they think about going from Christianity back to Judaism. Um, some people think it's a, it's, a, it's a other spiritual crisis, but the tension there seems to be that our author sees a group of people who are wavering in some ways to their in their commitment to Christ. They're wavering in uh, their their willingness to stick it out, to be loyal to Jesus and all things. And his concern, at, at the bare minimum, is that they're leaving Jesus. Now, uh, you know that's a lot to unpack in a short amount of time, and so I don't want to. I, I don't know how much we can go into details. But his concern seems to be one in which if they default from Jesus to something else, that they're losing something, something very important, something very solid. Um, and that's the, that's the key. That's where the concepts of apostasy and falling away. And so I think that's why Christians, many Christians are afraid to read Hebrews because they're afraid to read it and think, oh, gee, maybe my salvation is uh, not as solid as I thought. Maybe I can maybe I can drop the ball and lose this. Um, you know, I don't know that the author of Hebrews thinks it's as easy as waking up one day and deciding you're not a Christian. I don't think that's the implication. But there are those warning passages that seem to indicate that there's, you know, dire possibilities. I was today was just talking about the Kadesh Barnea generation in uh, in Numbers um, that the author brings up in Hebrews chapter four. And Kadesh Barnea is the, the the time when the children of Israel were told to go take the land. They sent the twelve spies out. And uh, 10 of the spies came back and said, we can't do it. And two of the spies, Joshua and Caleb, came back and said, but but God told us we can. So let's go do it. Well, the people listened to the 10 instead of the 12. And um, and God judged them harshly. In fact, he, he Psalm 95 says he swore in his wrath that they would not enter his rest. They they lost something tangible, uh, at least in the group, in the, in the case of the Kadesh Barnea generation. Those adults lost the opportunity to go into that land that God had promised them. And uh, so that kind of language carries out throughout the book of Hebrews, that failure to respond to God's promise or God's word or God's uh, you know, commands, failure to respond properly to that leads to consequences that, that, that can have really, really harsh repercussions. Um, so it runs the gamut from people thinking you know, salvation is forfeitable. If you walk away from Jesus, you've lost your salvation. Some even argue that you can lose salvation and not get it back at all. Um, others argue that it's, you know, it's something else. I, I, you know, I don't even have time to unpack all that. The point is, I think that's what scares people. They get to chapter six and they panic because they, 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 their, their relationship with God is, it doesn't seem secure to them maybe. And they, see chapter six is a threat. I see it this way though. And, and so I told my class today, I look at God's word as a, as, as a sharpener. It's a, it's a, it's a sword, of course, is, is what Paul calls it. The author of Hebrews even calls it a two-edged sword. I think that's an important thing for us to remember that it's there to 
correct. It's there to direct us to, to you know, Paul says it's for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the, that the person of God can be mature and, and, and grow in their knowledge of God and, and faith. So I take the warnings in Hebrews as a reminder to me that my salvation, my relationship with God, whatever I want to call this whole package deal, is serious. It's serious business. I can't, it's not, um, it's not something to be trifled with. It's not something to be treated with, uh, with, with lack of respect. It's, it's, it's serious business. As I think it was C.S. Lewis that said, I can't remember where he said this. I read it the other day, but C.S. Lewis said, you know, if, um, all humans will be resurrected to live forever. He said that knowledge should cause us to think seriously about how we live our lives in the 70 or so years we have here on earth. I, I'm paraphrasing, but that's the gist of what he said, that if we know that we're going to live forever, then what we do with this 70 or so years is important. And, you know, I think that's what the other Hebrews trying to tell these people, the, Leaving Jesus for something you think is is safe is not safe. So mm-hmm. don't leave Jesus. If I want to boil it down to something, that'd be the point. Don't don't walk away from Christ. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Scripture makes us hold things in tension. It makes us hold Absolutely. our security in tension and mm-hmm. the, the ability to fall away in tension. And and people are like, how does that work together? And and it's almost like you can't give them a. A like simple answer is like you just have to hold them. It's like both and at the same time, and this Absolutely. weird tension. It seems it's conflicting uh, truths, uh, but it all works together. Yeah, I was I was on the phone with a, a student earlier today, and uh, we were talking about assurance and mm-hmm. security, and um, he's struggling a bit with uh, his own personal walk with God. And you know, I told him, I said, you know, he. I meant, you know, I asked him who, which family member he's closest to. He mentioned his mother. And I said, did you get close to your mother in a day or two? And he, he said, well, of course not. I've known her you know, my whole life, basically. Mm-hmm. I said, and that's, that's kind of how it is with God. I, to walk with God requires me to, to take time, to spend time in his presence, spend time in his word, obviously in prayer, but also listening, uh, following the promptings of his spirit. And that takes, that that's not developed by osmosis, that's developed by intentional relationship. And I think that's why we as Christians are afraid of some of that because that it's the intentionality. Um, we, we're okay with God doing his part because God will do what he says he's gonna do, right? We're, we're all pretty secure with that. It's our part that worries us. And so I just encourage him, I said, you know, make an appointment with Jesus, make time, whether you're reading the Bible or praying or singing songs, spend some of that time interacting with Jesus like you would you know, not exactly like you would your mom, but like you would another person who you wanted to get to know. Um, to me, that's key to building assurance. Um, in Hebrews, this is a group of people that were about to walk away from the best relationship they could have, at least in the author's mindset. And so he's telling them, hey, hey you know, he's throwing a you know, warning sign up, one of those emergency signs, warning, don't step another step, because he's afraid if they do, they're going to lose that connection. Um we can debate what's going to be lost, but the fact is, if I don't cultivate an ongoing relationship with Christ, that's discipleship, then I'm going to find myself slipping into immaturity. I'm going to find myself slipping in ways that I probably really don't want to slip. And so, again, I think the the, the repercussions for me from studying Hebrews, like you said, is that tension. 
yes, I'm saved by the grace of God. Wonderful. Thank you, Jesus. But I also, I have to cultivate this relationship with God. Their discipleship requires something of me. I can't just sit back and, you know, receive it all in. I have to also do something. As Paul said to the Philippian church, all of you work out your salvation that God's worked in all of you. So the implication is we as Christians take what God's given us, but we have to do something with that too. Uh, the author of Hebrews just is pushing it, I think, to the limits that cause people to cringe a little bit, for lack of better terms. Yeah, definitely. Uh, my last question about Hebrews, who wrote Hebrews? That's it. Ah. <laughs> I, will, ah. I will do that. <laughs> well, I'll quote Origin. only God knows. So, um, yeah, I don't. I don't have a good answer for that. One. I am convinced that uh, that somebody related to Paul was the original person from whom I think Hebrews is a sermon. I think the original sermon was preached by someone close to Paul. I don't know that Paul preached it. I'm not convinced it was Paul, but someone close to him. Um, some people, Dr. David Allen, has argued in his commentary on Hebrews that Luke may have written down what we have. Um, you know, my mentor thought Apollos might have been the most likely candidate for speaking the sermon. Uh, I, but I'll, in answer to your question, we don't know for sure the human author. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, we got God inspired it, but we don't know for sure who the human author was. Yeah, um, I remember um, that you you said that the first day of Hebrews that it was a sermon, and you read it aloud to us because you that you said we would understand it better mm -hmm. if you read it first. Uh, allow than us reading it uh, just um, in our as, during our homework time. So uh, that was definitely helpful to 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 understand um, how it was intended to be to be understood. Um, is there anything else you want to say on the topic of sharing or answering questions, answering difficult questions with grace and truth to our audience? Well, I would I would say the, remember that the people that are asking these questions. Most of them, you know, not all of them are antagonistic. There are people that are going to ask questions just because they want to try to get our goat. They want to try to win an argument. We have people both on the Christian and non-Christian side who just want to win. That's reality. But some of the folks who are asking questions are generally seeking answers. Um, so I think recognizing that and not attacking them is, is, is important. Um, Jesus called out evil, called out sin when he saw it. So I'm not saying we should avoid ever uh, saying to somebody that's wrong or that's evil. I'm not saying that at all, but I do think when I, when I have a, a genuine questioner in front of me, and that's the hard part to discern, I think, is whether they're genuine or not, um, then I need to, to deal with that with compassion. Sarcasm rarely wins hearts. Um, and I, and Lisa, you know me, sarcasm is my love language, but sarcasm rarely wins people over. Um, harsh words are, are rarely a way to get people's attention. If you, if you want to, if you want to you know, accuse or um, uh, make mock, make fun of somebody, then you're probably not going to win them to the truth. On the other hand, if you treat them with kindness, even if they're mean to you, you know, Peter says that if we act in gentleness and reverence towards others to make that hope that we have, the reason that we have this hope known to folks, then that gentleness and reverence can actually cause people to come to faith. So to me, it's just a matter of doing what God said to do. Uh, there's a time and a place for arguments, I think. There's a time and a place for um, hard words, that's certainly in the Bible. 
But when somebody comes to me with a genuine question, the best thing I can do for them is to answer with gentleness and reverence. Thank you. Um, thank you so much, Dr. Purser, for this interview. Thank you for uh, how you've helped me in my development uh, and helped shape kind of my approach to apologetics and answering questions. Um, what books would you recommend for our audience that are wrestling with the problem of evil and just apologetics and one uh, the best apologetic books that you've, I know that's a wide net, but uh, any books you want to recommend to our audience? Yeah, you know, I wish I had looked up some books, to be honest with you. Um, my friend, like I said, I'm on uh, the um, board of directors for Ratio Christi, and my friend Clay Jones just recently wrote a book, Why Does God Allow Evil is the name of the book. Um, I highly recommend that book. It's a, it's a very good book on the topic of uh, the problem of evil. Um, but there's, I mean, Literally, when it comes to apologetics, there are probably as many authors as there are. <laughs> you probably <laughs> could find. What's your favorite books. apologetic book? Maybe. Oh wow! Um, actually, the, my favorite one that I've read, and I haven't read this in a while, so I had to be honest. Uh, Peter Kreft has a book entitled um, "Best Things in Life," and in the "Best Things in Life," he, he tells a story where Socrates goes back. Uh, goes actually, Socrates comes to our time and future and goes to a college campus and debates with college students about what, what's important in life. It's a wonderful book. It's really not technically about apologetics, but it shows how a Socratic method can be used as an apologetic to point people to the truth. Um, but again, you, you're asking a loaded question because as soon as I start mentioning names of authors, if I fail to mention a friend, then <laughs> I'm going <laughs> to offend somebody. Um, but there's well general apologetics. There's a there's I think there's a there's a three views of apologetics. Dr. Habermas uh, is one of the authors in that that outlines different approaches to Christian apologetics. I believe it's three views. Um, there's a um, well, gee, there you know you pick a topic. If you go to Amazon and type in apologetics, you're probably going to find more books than you know what to do with. Um, but I would I would recommend you know, just. I would recommend starting with people you know. Uh, that's why I recommend Clay Jones. That's why I recommend Gary Habermas. I know these men personally. Um, and no disrespect to other apologists I don't know personally. Uh, but because I know them, I feel like I can trust them. So um, there, Habermas has written several books on apologetics. Um, Michael Lacona is somebody else I trust a lot uh, in the books he's written. Now, he does a lot of biblical study stuff, not so much apologetics. Um, oh, I know a book, and I just thought of this. I, I, sorry, I didn't even think of it. Mary Jo Sharp uh, came out with a book about a year ago entitled Why I Am Still a Christian. And I have to admit, it's one of the best apologetics books I think I've ever read. I had the privilege of, uh, of uh, uh, reviewing that book for the Moral Apologetics website, and um, I highly recommend her book. Um, David Baggett, uh, a colleague of mine who now teaches at Houston Baptist, has written several books on the moral apologetic approach. Uh, his books are usually very, very good. Um, and I, I'd highly recommend them. So that'll give you, that'll give your audience a few people to look at. But again, I think the Peter Kreef's Best Things in Life and Mary Jo Sharp's Why I'm Still a Christian are two of the best books I've read in a long time on uh, apologetics, just general. And it's, it's suitable for lay people. You don't have to have a college education to read these two books is my point. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. Uh, I greatly, greatly appreciate it, Dr. Person. How can people, what's your uh, your um, handle on Twitter? Well, actually, it's my name, Leo Purser. I'm on Twitter. I'm also on Facebook if somebody wants to seek me out there. 
Um, I'm, I add friends on a regular basis. So uh, I'm, I'm not one of those that friends everybody. But if uh, if you send me a note, we'll add you. Twitter, on the other hand, yeah, feel free to, to, to follow me on Twitter if you want to. Um, I'm also on MeWe. Uh, again, my name, Leo Purser. So it's not hard to find me. Um, and I have a blog. I don't write on it very often. Um, it's, uh, uh, well, I'll, I'll share that with you later, Lisa, and you can share it with your audience if they want to know it. It's uh, Beyond the Wardrobe. It's on Blogspot. Um, but uh, yeah, I'd love to love to communicate with folks. In fact, somebody told me once that uh, when Jesus returns, I'll probably be tweeting about it. So, <laughs> <laughs> so apparently I'm on social media too much. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Dr. Purser. This has been a rich time. Thank you all for watching uh, the G3 Project podcast. Uh, we are so thankful for you. Remember here at the G3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it. Make sure you grab our curriculum right here through Eyes of Color. Uh, it is a contextualized guide to helping you know what you believe and why you believe it. A six-week small group guide that can be done alone or in a group. Uh, you will enjoy it. It will help you to engage those questions that are most pressing in the African-American context around apologetic issues. Remember, you can become a monthly partner at g3project.org. Get the book at g3project.org. And also we have courses on there as well. Um, until next time, grace and peace and God bless.